Hello, hello. My name is Tyler Pruitt, and I am the host, and I am the founder of the Rice Killing Podcast. Thank you for joining me today for a new episode of the Rice Killing Podcast. It's been a while. It's been a while since I've been on the mic, and it's been a while since I have jumped on here and shared some content, shared some of my thoughts, and just kind of do a solo episode where I just basically just do what, exactly what I just said, get on here and share some thoughts. So if this is your first time joining me on the Rice Gillette Podcast, this show is designed, it's designed to be a resource for those that love God, freedom, and the great outdoors. All right, and that's it. That's exactly what it's all about. That's that's what I want the whole podcast, the whole experience to be all about. I want it to be focused on those three elements, God, freedom, and the great outdoors. I know in the past I've done series where I've gone through and divided out those three elements of this show and just kind of discussed each one individually. But basically, this is a show where I want to share our faith in God, share our relationships with Christ, and talk about how we are free in him because of the sacrifice that he made and we are of course free as american citizens then of course we typically we have some kind of conversation that surrounds hunting and surrounds fishing surrounds something to do with the outdoors so i mean up to this point i've been blessed with some incredible conversations with some incredible people uh john eldred had him on recently bud fisher catching deers uh, Jeff Danker, Buck Ventures, Travis T-Bone Turner. It's been an incredible lineup that I've been blessed to be able to be a part of on this Rise Kelly podcast. And I am looking forward to being able to get some new content out there for you guys. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work that goes into podcasting. I know podcasting is a thing that a lot of people, they are interested in doing. There's a lot of new podcasts that it seems like popping up every single day. And then a lot of times you'll see those those podcasts, they'll start to kind of dwindle out. And personally, I think it's because as being somebody who's been doing this for, you know, a little over a year now, I think it's just because the amount of work that goes into it. It's a time commitment. It takes a lot of work, not just to get on here and record, but there's also planning. There's reaching out to potential guests. There's developing outlines for interviews. There's editing the whole publishing process. I mean, it's a it's quite a bit of work that goes into just one episode. So because of that, I just want to ask that you guys leave me a rating and review on iTunes. If you guys are finding any kind of value from this show, um, 2020 has been great for the Rice Elite podcast. It's been a really cool experience to be able to see how much it's grown and be able to connect with some of you guys that are literally from all over the world. It's been really cool to, to hear from you guys about how you're listening to the show. So thank you so much for that, because that means a lot, because like I was saying, sometimes those that work it'll really grind down on you and getting those messages and hearing from you guys is just it's really cool so thank you so much for that if you guys haven't connected with me on social media you can do that on facebook instagram and parlor on facebook you can find me at facebook.com slash rke a field that's rke as in rice kill eat a field and then also on instagram you can find me there at the handle at rice kill eat all lowercase all together and then i'm also on parlor at the handle at rice kill eat so I'm still figuring out the whole parlor deal, but um, I do jump on there every once in a while, share some of my thoughts. A lot of it's been focused around COVID, which just seems like that's what everything's focused on right now. So, but the point is, I'm on those three platforms: Facebook, Instagram, Parlor. Connect with the Rice Elite Podcast on there. Today, I am going to jump into the world of science and specifically viewing science from a Christian perspective. 
All right. Some of you guys may have heard on some of the interviews that I've, I've done in the past with some guests that I am a science teacher. I do teach public school science and being, of course, a believer, um, it, it challenges you to really explore your own perspective, your own worldview, see it in a way that isn't compromising to the secular pr- perspective. So this is, of course, very true for when it comes to science and how you approach science and what science is and all that kind of thing. So I wanted to approach this because I've heard it so many times. I've heard it in people from all walks of life. I mean, from my own students to some of the most educated and some of the most prominent professors and philosophers and all that kind of thing. But this whole argument, it kind of stems from the phrase, uh, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. A lot of us has probably heard that being said before that, you know, there's no evidence for God and therefore I'm only going to believe in science. I'm only going to believe in the things that I can see. So that is exactly what I kind of want to approach with today's episode. Um, Now, obviously, based on that, we're not really going to get into a lot of the hunting aspects of things. But like I said, this is a show that is focused on God, freedom, and the great outdoors. And I think this definitely follows in line with those things. Or this episode is going to really kind of not necessarily attack. It's going to approach that argument of, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Now, in order to really do this, I had to do a little bit of research and I had to kind of uh, go research a little bit further some of the things that I knew, but I needed to really get into the the details. So, for example, um, the church. So when I say the church, and I'll, I'll kind of go into this a little bit more, the church as in like Roman Catholic Church and Protestant Church, they've always, you know, at least for the past several centuries, they've had a lot of disagreements with you know, a lot of the secular scientists and philosophers of that kind of thing. There's a long history of battles and disagreements between the church and secular scientists of the day. And that's not just true for today. I mean, this has been something that's going on for a while. So one notable kind of a disagreement, one notable battle that I wanted to discuss here was one that took place actually over a matter of several centuries. So um, there was a an astronomer and mathematician. His name was Ptolemy. Okay, so don't ask me what the first name was, but Ptolemy was his name, and he was actually a second century astronomer and mathematician. All right, so he's best known for something called geocentrism. All right, so this was the scientifically supported idea that the Earth is in the middle of the universe. Okay, now, of course, 2,000 years later, we think this is crazy, okay, but this was very much a a scientifically accepted this was a very much accepted viewpoint from the church's perspective is the this idea of geocentrism all right so ptolemy is the one who is kind of coined with uh getting the credit for this geocentrism so remember that this was something that took place in the second century so this is not long after christ's ascension into heaven I mean, this is probably maybe a hundred years after that okay so ptolemy had this idea of geocentrism now, um, this was widely accepted, like I said before, um, between the church, both Catholic and Protestant, and of course the secular citizens as well. But it wasn't until about 1300, 1400 years later when this guy named Copernicus, a lot of people probably heard that name before, Copernicus, a Polish scientist, really started to challenge Ptolemy's conclusion. All right, so he, he was really challenging 
Ptolemy's idea of geocentrism that the earth was the center of the universe. Now he came up with this idea, okay, based on mathematical measurements, uh, doing a lot of astronomical studies with this telescope, I'm sure, which of course, you know, 500 years ago wasn't great technology, but it was something that they had. Copernicus came up with the idea of heliocentrism. All right, so heliocentrism is this idea that the sun is actually in the center. Okay, so of course, knowing what we know now, we're getting a little bit closer to to what is actually going on. Copernicus, he started to challenge Ptolemy's geocentrism and implemented this idea of heliocentrism. All right, and then actually about 100 years-ish, okay, these, these timelines are very rough, about 100 years-ish later, Galileo Galilei, okay, another name that's probably pretty well known, later supported Copernicus's idea. So this was kind of the, the foundation. This was the start of one of the many long-term battles that, that took place between the faith community and the science community. Okay, and I use those with quotes. I know this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes here. The faith community and the science community. All right, so this is one of the long-term battles between those two those two those two groups of people. Now, this was an issue because the church was opposing this idea of heliocentrism because the Pope at the time, because in his perspective, this was not something that was supported by scripture, okay, and actually opposes scripture. So I had to do a little bit of research here because, you know, I first, first thought whenever I read that, I was like, well, I don't know where in the world does it even mention that in the Bible. So I looked at it, and after doing a little bit of research, um, I was able to find a few verses that kind of support, you know, somewhat support this idea, or I won't even say support it. It was can be interpreted in a way they could see that it was supporting this, okay? So I found a few, uh, not all. Um, the first one is Psalm 93.1. I'm actually going to go through this here in just a second. Um, Psalm 104.5 and First Chronicles 16.30. Okay, now there was a, a few others that kind of mentioned this idea as well, but these were three that I picked out that I think really pointed to it the most. Now, um, these specific verses and passages, they refer to the earth not moving, okay, or it shall never be moved. This is, these are three things that I noticed, three trends that really started to appear consistently in these three verses. So Psalm 93, chapter 93, verse 1 says the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put strength on his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Okay, so there's that that theme again, that phrase, it shall never be moved. Now you see this again in Psalm 104 verse 5. It says that he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. All right, and then we see it again here in First Chronicles 16.30. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Okay, so you're seeing this, this, it shall never be moved, talking about the earth, and it doesn't move. It's stationary, and it doesn't move. And I think what happened, you know, from the Pope's perspective at the time is that whenever he read this, you know, I think it was being, he was interpreting it as the earth is stationary. So I don't think this is necessarily referring to something that is stationary. I think these are just some examples of some of the scripture that a lot of the religious leaders and a lot of the verses that a lot of religious leaders were using as a reference in order to, you know, deny this idea of heliocentrism that was proposed by Copernicus um, to deny that the sun, you know, was the center of the universe 
Of course, this is what they believed at the time. This is where the early ideas of heliocentrism. But if you look into these a little bit further, okay, so we know, of course, Psalm, the book of Psalm, is primarily written by David. You know, it's something that is, it's very lyrical. It's very poetic. Um, there's a lot of metaphors used throughout Psalm, um, almost like a, a song, how we would see, you know, song lyrics written today. A lot of those aren't necessarily literal lyrics. Okay, so this is something you see a lot in David's writing. And First Chronicles 16, is you see a lot of the same thing because it's very much, again, David using a lot of that lyrical, poetic type of writing. Okay, so I don't think this is necessarily referring to something that is stationary because I don't think that, you know, the Word of God, truly in, inspired by God, infallible Word of God, you know, I don't think that God got it wrong whenever he said that the earth was stationary. So I think this what this is referring to is something that is a little bit different. Okay, so there, are, I think there are actually two ways that we can kind of approach this that, and they're actually kind of going to overlap a little bit. So personally, I think the reason that David wrote these in the way that he did was to show the greatness of God. All right, so we see that, like I said, a lot in Psalms. We see that a lot in a lot of David's writing. All right, to credit God the Almighty with the creation of earth and that no man or other being has the power to change the earth's direction like God can. All right, so he's showing the greatness of God. He's showing how good God is and that the earth is reliant entirely on God and that it can't be knocked off, can't be knocked out of God's hands just like the rest of the heavens, just like the rest of our celestial bodies. These things are all completely reliant on the physics that God created. Again, we're going to get to the science stuff here in just a second, but I wanted to kind of just start out with this little story, this little historical, I guess, lesson in a way, just to show you that this is something that has been going on for a very long time. All right, so in order to support this, because I am a firm believer that my opinions don't matter, and if I'm going to be coming up with any kind of philosophy or ideas based on something like this where you're talking about God in the Bible, you need to have scripture to support it. So what I did was I found some scripture to support it. So First Chronicles 16, 26, very close. That's actually right before one of the verses I just used. So First Chronicles 16, 26 says that for all, for all gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Okay. So we see right here that the God created the heavens. All right. So he is the maker of the heavens. And we see this kind of repeated a little bit in some of these other uh, references that I found. Isaiah 48, 13. This is God talking, the Lord talking. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. And uh, another reference I found, Psalm 102, 25. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. So I found these verses specifically to show that God is the creator of the heavens. So he did not get it wrong whenever he was mentioning that they were stationary. But I think what it is is that David was using these types of lyrics. He was using these types of words, this type of writing to show the greatness of God. He was showing the, the greatness of the almighty creator of the heavens to show that the earth is not just free-floating out of control and without any kind of order or anything. That's what I think is being referenced here. Now, interestingly enough, I was able to, on top of all this, I was able to kind of find some references to some astronomical events that take place throughout the Bible. 
Okay, you could actually even call these miracles because these are things that are out of the ordinary. Uh, By definition, a miracle is an event or an experience that defies natural or scientific expectations. These are events that are highly improbable, almost never occur on a natural basis. All right, so in Joshua 10, you see one of these miracles take place when the sun actually stands still. Okay, and then Isaiah 38, it has an account of the sun rewinding, you know, so to speak, rewinding in the sky. So, I mean, these are all things that are not necessarily supported by science because they go completely against what our laws of physics, which is why they have to be considered miracles. Okay, the fact that Jesus Christ even rose from the dead is a miracle. It's something that defies the laws of science. It defies the laws of biology, uh, defies the laws of nature. So these are all things that are considered miracles. That By definition, that's what a miracle is, something that goes against the natural or scientific expectations. Okay, so that's something else that is also in the Bible. So to think that the, the Bible doesn't mention, you know, scientific events, it definitely does. It definitely does. All right, so I researched all this and I referenced all that stuff basically to come up with this conclusion that, you know, based on my quick study and research that I think that the church at the time, at the time of Galileo, I think that the church at the time had an interpretation of scripture that made them believe that the earth is a stationary object in the middle of the universe and that everything else revolved around it. Okay. So this was the, again, going back to Ptolemy's idea of geocentrism. This was it right here. Of course, modern calculations and what we know now that that's not the case. Okay. And it's extremely important for us to take the Bible in the context of the time and to not take verses and passages out of context. Okay, context is key. Context is a huge part of being able to understand and interpret the Bible. It's something I'm currently working on now as I continue to study the Bible. Something that I try to remember, you know, as I'm going through it, that a lot of the things that were taking place in the Bible, you know, they may seem odd, they may seem weird for us, but context is key. I'm not saying that the, the church necessarily misinterpreted what was going on, but these are just a few observations that, that I made in just this short time of research in this. All right, so I think it's very important for us that we don't become entrapped. We don't fall victim to the atheistic, the evolutionary, the um, naturalistic trap of saying that. That's proof that the Bible is wrong and can't be trusted, okay? So to sit here and see, read about a miracle like we saw, or like you can read about in Joshua 10 or in Isaiah 38, can be very difficult for us to be able to prove that scientifically, which is why it is considered a miracle. Don't fall victim to the atheistic line, the evolutionary, the naturalist line of saying that, you know, that of course can't happen. So therefore the Bible is wrong and you cannot trust it. Okay. So don't fall victim to that. Yeah. You've probably heard this before about, you know, the evolutionary theory. All right. So now when it comes to evolution specifically, so that's something that has really within the past, I don't know, probably 150 years, has really become, you know, kind of the modern day <laughs> argument between the church and the scientific community. So this ev- idea of evolutionary theory based on Charles Darwin's conclusions that he made. So the atheist that believes 100% solely in the evolutionary theory, they think that the same kind of outcome is going to occur when it comes to evolution. They think that once they get enough evidence, that once they get enough support and once they show enough show enough evidence, basically, that eventually the the church will be proven wrong and the Judeo-Christian rejection of the evolutionary theory will be basically proven 
proven wrong. Very similar to to kind of how it was, you know, 500 years ago when it comes to the the geocentrism and the heliocentrism type of argument. They think that the same kind of thing will will occur. They think that they just need more evidence. You've probably seen within the past 50 years or so this mention of a a missing link. Okay, so you may see something like we have found the missing link to show that people did in fact come from apes, or you may hear that eventually. There will be enough evidence to undeniably show that all living things have one ancient an- ancestor. You may just hear, you may hear things like Christians are just science deniers, right? So some of these are said about this approach to the evolutionary theory. So first of all, we have to talk about, we have to discuss two types of scientific data. Okay, so there is observational science. So observational science is is measured by evidence that is gathered by observing in real time. So you, you'll see this stuff in like pharmaceuticals. You can see the chemical reactions of medicines and how they react with our body. Okay, that's observational science. You Measuring weight. Okay, that's something that is observational science. Observing the earth orbiting the sun. You know, going back to the astronomical observations. These are all things that can be observed in real time right now. Okay, this is evidence that's gathered by observing in real time. Now, there's also another type called historical science. Historical science is evidence that is gathered based on cause and effect presumptions and potential past events. All right, so this is something that you are basically taking what can be observed and you're applying that same type of presumption to potential past events. All right, so two of the biggest arguments facing us today, okay, this idea of evolutionary theory and the Big Bang Theory, they both fall into this category of historical science. Okay, so what has occurred is we've taken patterns that we can observe today, taken observational science, we've tried to apply that to what we think has occurred in you know certain events like the Big Bang Theory and the evolutionary theory. Okay, not a bad way to do it. Okay, it's really not. It's not a bad way to approach it. All right, but the issue becomes when we hold these observations, we hold these, you know, evidences to be truth okay because it is not observable okay now a good atheist will likely present the argument that we can observe and we can do so to discuss in the the big bang theory just a little bit here um a good atheist you know i use that again in quotes a good atheist will likely present the argument that we can observe and we do observe the expansion of the universe at this moment okay therefore if you were to hypothetically rewind that expansion you end up at a point of singularity. Okay, so some of you guys may, if you've researched Big Bang Theory from a Christian perspective at all, or just Big Bang Theory in general, you've probably heard of this this point of singularity. All right, so this point is where all matter exploded. Okay, so that that would be kind of the the argument that a a good atheist would make. This is an example of that historical science. Okay, so historical science is where we see the effect of something today and then presumptions are made using the, the biological, uh, the chemical and physical properties and principles that we determined caused it. Okay, so we take what we know today and we apply that to, and we presume it to occur in the past, and that's how we can come up with these these conclusions. Okay, I think this is a compelling argument. Like I said a minute ago, I don't think that's a bad way of doing science. I think that's a very, very good way. Okay. But now the issue for at least, you know, believers occurs whenever this is being portrayed as truth. And that is, and that it is opposing what the Bible says. One way to look at this is, you know, I see this, I see this in the Bible and it talks about that same exact thing in Genesis chapter one. 
Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so even the Bible says that there was a beginning. Okay, so this point of singularity that a scientist will talk about, it's essentially their way of saying that it's the beginning. All right, so even the Bible says that, so that's something we can agree on. So in the Bible, the word heavens is a reference to pretty much anything beyond the earth. Okay, so Genesis 1.1, saying that in the beginning, so we are both agreeing that there's a beginning here, that God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so now the science scientist, the atheistic scientist, will say that this point of singularity, that there's just a bunch of matter there, okay, don't even try to ask them where that matter came from, but there's a bunch of matter there that just happened to explode, and then everything just began to fall into place over several billions of years. Okay, so that's what the scientist says. All right, so the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe he did it through an explosion. Maybe he did it in a single day. That's something that is a hot topic too, as well as the the amount of time, which we'll get to here in a second. But maybe he did it in a single day. Maybe he did it over, you know, a thousand years. I don't know. That's, I wish we could go back and watch the videotape of it just so we know. But the translation of the word day in Genesis is the very same translation that we think of as the sun going up and sun coming down. So maybe he did do it in a day. And that's what the Bible says. So that's what we're going to go with. All right. But the point is that there was a beginning and that God created the heavens and the earth. All right. So again, kind of jumping back on that topic of time. One of the issues that often comes up in these types of arguments is time. You see this same type thing when it comes to evolution as well. I know I'm going back and forth between these two things, but these are just kind of the big things that are kind of mainstream with the, the faith community and with the uh, science community. So obviously the science community will say that the Big Bang Theory took place over 4.6 billion years, okay? Whereas a creationist would argue that this took one day, okay? So the first day of creation week was devoted to this very event, okay? So obviously one day and 4.6 billion years is a huge difference in time, and it can be a major, I guess, hiccup and scientific argument, okay? So for me personally, I have to ask myself this question, okay? Because this is something I've, I've really struggled with for a long time, um, you know, I see what the scientific e evidence says. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but I just have a hard time believing that he did it in a day. But then I, this question really kind of kind of snuck up on me one day as I was kind of thinking about this. So I have to ask myself this question. If the God that I believe created the heavens, the earth, and everything we see truly has the power to create all these things, then why do I think that the same God would be held back by time? Okay, so I was very quickly reminded by, I don't know, maybe it was myself, maybe it was God intervening, putting a thought in my head. I don't know. But I was very quickly reminded that God exists outside of time. Like he is the creator of time. So why would he be held back by time? This is kind of going back to what I was mentioning before as far as the miracles go. This is something that would, of course, defy scientific law. It would defy scientific principles. But God's not held back by that, those types of things. Maybe he did take 4.6 million years to create everything. And the author of Genesis translated that down to one day. Maybe. I don't know. Or the God of the universe who exists outside of space and time, like I mentioned, did in fact create all this in a matter of just a few hours. If the Bible is true, and I know that we believe it is, then we know that God definitely has the power to do that. So a very similar argument can be used uh, when you explore evolutionary theory. Uh, the evolutionary theory says that humans, fish, frogs, monkeys, whatever else began to evolve when the chemical composition of the earth was exactly perfect and then a, basically a mud puddle was struck by lightning. 
Okay, I'm not making this up. This is this is when they say our stuff is crazy. This is what the the argument is. Okay, so this sparked a growth of unicellular organisms, okay, also known as protists or protozoa, that eventually evolved into what we have today. Okay, so looking at your neighbor, looking at your kids, looking at your dog, according to the evolutionary theory, we all came from a mud puddle. All right, whatever. All right, so. Now, obviously, I'm playing that down a little bit, but that is the gist of that is true as far as what they what they believe, you know, the evolutionary theory is or what it says. So that is what the argument is. We, you know, along with everybody else, are products of a mud puddle that randomly adapted and experienced natural selection over several countless millions of years with time and random chance. Anything is possible. Okay, so. Again, I'm just kind of approaching this from a Christian perspective, trying to understand the other side's argument, because I believe that it's important that we do understand the those who oppose us. We do understand their argument, just like if you were coaching a football game, then the best way to be able to try to defeat your opponent is by studying their film, okay, watching how they play, seeing what they what they do in certain situations. So I think it's important for us in, you know, any type of, you know, whether it's apologetic type scenario. Or in this case, you know, kind of looking at what science says based on our perspectives of the world. You know, I think it's important that we kind of understand this. So that's what I'm kind of going with here. So that's what the argument is for evolutionary theory. So one interesting observation to make when looking at this from a historical science perspective is that this supposedly only happened once. Okay, so this is something that has really kind of stunned me as far as, you know, the scientific community all about things repeating and all about things if it happens over and over and over if it's observable over and over again then you know it must be true but they are completely okay with this idea of a mud puddle being struck by lightning or salt water or whatever the claim is being struck by lightning one time and then this was successful the first time it happened and then never happening ever again um, they're completely okay with that all right so this process has never repeated itself here on earth okay you don't see frogs crawling out of uh, mud puddles that get struck by lightning now. This doesn't happen. This doesn't take place. You don't see a fish just randomly showing up whenever the ocean gets struck by lightning. All right, so you don't see it happening. So we don't see random cells begin growing when lightning strikes water, like what they claimed to happen back then. Now, there is one interesting thing that, uh, you know, for a while really started to to. I guess, concern the church really started to make them a little bit nervous. Okay. And there was this something called the Miller experiment. Okay. And you can actually research this. You can look into it, watch all kinds of videos on it. Um, so basically what this Miller experiment was, you had a scientist who was trying to recreate the scenario that could have produced this, these cells that started growing from lightning and water. Okay. So this Miller experiment, you know, just kind of in a nutshell, it took certain gases that they, this scientist thought, I guess his name was Miller, he thought existed on Earth at the time. He took the chemical composition of the water that existed at the time and kind of added those two things together with a spark of electricity, and it did produce cells. Okay, so interesting enough, they were able to produce organic material from inorganic things. Okay, so like I said, this was something that really started to concern the church because it's like, well, maybe they do have a solid argument here. But not too long after this took place, it was 
refuted by both obviously the church and actually surprisingly the scientific community as well because Miller used the wrong types of gases. Okay, so he was using, I don't know the specifics, but basically he was using gases that were not thought to exist at the time and therefore the experiment, in order for it to be a solid argument for the evolutionary theory, it would have to replicate the exact environment at the time. Okay, so I definitely suggest looking this up because I'm just kind of giving you the, the slow breakdown of what, what occurred here. But essentially, the Miller experiment was proven wrong because the, the wrong types of gases, wrong types of elements were present in the gases at the time. So anyway, the, uh, the Christian argument can again be found in, in Genesis chapter 1. And then it's supported with further scripture throughout the Bible. So Genesis 1, 20 through 28 tells us that animals and humans were created at different times. Okay, they were not created at the same time. All right, so animals are not the result of an evolutionary process. Okay, we see that in Genesis 1. We see it take place. So interestingly enough, I know I keep kind of referring, bouncing around back and forth here, but interestingly enough, I did find one verse as I was kind of preparing for this that kind of raised some questions. Okay, so this one verse that I wanted to point at was Genesis 1.24. This verse reads like this, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. All right, so this has been a verse that some evolutionary theorists, again, those who don't believe the Bible, so this has been a verse that has been used by these this group of people to argue that animals did, in fact, evolve from the earth and from or inorganic material, and it is supported by the Bible. Okay. And ironic enough, now they're okay with the Bible whenever they think it, they can weaponize it. So, so they think that this verse right here, Genesis one twenty four, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Okay. It says, let the earth bring forth. Okay. So whenever it says that, that is the, the argument that they make in order to tr truly understand what this is saying, we have to remember that original biblical texts were not written in English. Okay, surprisingly enough, I know that's hard to hard to believe, and that this is possibly a result of some translation concerns or translation issues. All right, so the earth is what sustains these created beings. Okay, but God is ultimately the creator of those beings. Okay, and we see that very thing in the next verse. Okay, verse 25 says that and God made the beast of the earth, God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds. Okay, so it's even categorizing these animals based on their kinds and continuing on here and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Okay, so we can see that God is the one that creates the animals. Verse 24 is referencing that the earth is going to be what sustains these animals. Okay, so we have vegetation, we have food supplies that are able to sustain living things. God made these animals according to their own kinds. They were not all made at one time. They were all not made from the same pot, so to speak, or mud puddle. They were made according to their kinds. So livestock probably included things like cows, goats, horses, things like that. Uh, creeping things are likely a reference to reptiles, amphibians, snakes, those type of things. Um, beast probably referring to cats, dogs, predators, maybe even some of the servant animals like deer, elk, those types of things. So they were all created separately. 
not the result from evolving from one another. Now, a Christian, I truly believe this, cannot fully accept the evolutionary theory, okay, or any other scientific theory that is intended to attempt to disprove the existence of God, or even worse, replace the idea of God with something else, okay? You can see that in an abortion, and that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother episode that I could get into. I could spend a whole hour talking about that. But more specifically, Darwin's theory of evolution can be summarized by saying that Living things exist today because of subtle changes, adaptations, and natural selection that took place over extremely long periods of time. All life comes from a single point. No intelligent guidance took place. It occurred naturally and randomly. So that's, if you had to summarize what Darwin's theory of evolution is, that's basically it right there. It's taking the idea of God, a creator, and taking it out. Okay, so we cannot, because of that alone... Okay, there are countless other reasons as well. Because of that alone, a true Christian cannot fully support the evolutionary theory because it's taken this idea of God, taken them out. All right, so this is a blatant denial of God's existence and, and definitely of God's role in creation. They are basically forcing God out of the picture using whatever excuse they can to make themselves their own gods. So people like Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, They've all made it their life's work to use science and to use philosophy to attempt to disprove God's existence. <laughs> and in reality, they better hope they're right because, you know, we know the truth. Genesis tells us that this has been the case since the Garden of Eden and a recurring cycle over the course of human history where humans are trying to determine their own truths apart from God. They're trying to be their own rulers. And that is exactly the reason that Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden themselves. Because they wanted to be the ones to know good and evil. And they fell very short of God's expectations for them. The denial of God the creator and claiming that there is no evidence of him goes totally against the very nature of the God of the Bible. Romans one twenty says that for his invisible traits, invisible meaning that can't see, for his invisible traits or his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, the word eternal, is evidence that God exists outside of time and divine nature. Okay. So divine being that he exists outside of nature, outside of worldly concepts have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made known. So they are without excuse. Okay. I'll read that again without breaking that up for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This verse pretty much sums up my point of this entire episode. Okay, so God doesn't need to be real, quote unquote, or for us to defend him or his creation. Now, I'm not saying that we'd give up in the face of an argument, okay? Especially if somebody is berating God's existence, kind of like the Dawkins, Hitchens, and the Harrises of the world. God may use that, that interaction as a way of glorifying himself and use that to maybe even potentially convert somebody that we're talking to. So don't lay down in the face of, of an argument just for the sake of us not having to defend God. But my point is that God doesn't need us to prove that he is real. Okay, We don't need to view arguments of science and faith as a, as a courtroom where we are God's lawyers and he is the defendant and the science community are the judges. Okay, we don't need to do that. We don't need to have that perspective. So it's important for us to see that God has been on trial before. Jesus stood silent 
before Pilate prior to his crucifixion. Innocent of the crimes that he was accused of, he stood silent. He very easily could have done some miraculous sign to prove that he is truly the Son of God, but he stood silent. So God has been on trial before. <laughs> I mean, literally the, the Son of God stood on trial. Jesus knew that he was in that moment. His disciples knew who he was. And I'm even convinced that Pilate even knew who he was. But he let his work speak for him. Okay, so that's basically what Romans one twenty is saying as far as the creation goes. God's work is his creation, and his creation is speaking on his behalf. And we can see that type of scenario occurring right now. The world screams that God isn't real and that we have the science to prove it. Whenever you think of you know secular scientists, that's exactly what they're saying. But what they are so blind to see is that their very observations that they make about the earth all points back to God himself. The Bible is not a scientific textbook. That's not why it was written. It wasn't intended to be a scientific textbook. It's not going to give you the answers to your biology, chemistry, or physics exams. It won't necessarily even give you the how of God's creation, but it will give you the why, and it will tell you the who of God's creation. It will tell you why God created the heavens and the earth. It will also tell you how the very ones that deny the existence of God as the creator and the ones that deny Christ as king and the Son of God can be forgiven. And it will point to Jesus every single time because he is the one who bore our sins and allowed darkness to overtake him so that we may no longer be infiltrated by it. He did this for a wicked people that will find every single excuse not to believe that he is God and that he is real. And they will use science as their excuse. To say that you don't believe in God because you only believe in science is a foolish pursuit. You are relying on your own understanding and putting all of your faith, and that's exactly what it is, it's faith, in something that is constantly changing and constantly being proven wrong. It is a system of trial and error thinking that will never satisfy you. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is possible to be a Christian and believe in scientific thinking and trust proven scientific discoveries. In fact, I encourage this because we can thank science for many wonderful things like the phone or the device that you're listening to this podcast on, um, to medicines that allow people to live longer, healthier lives. Um, even the homes that we live in are a result of scientific discoveries to make us safer and healthier. Um, science is not anti-Christian, but to idolize it and to make it your own God is wrong and will only produce hopelessness and emptiness. When I was in college, my biology professor made the argument that if you took religion and philosophy out of the picture, then the only purpose that people have on this earth is to reproduce and die. This was a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year olds sitting in the lecture hall and probably a hundred plus people. And this is what he told us that basically people are, again, this is my biology professor only on this earth to reproduce and then die. And we wonder why the world is running rampant with evil. Okay. It's because as a whole, People are being persuaded that they are their own masters. God does not exist, and they and their only purpose is to reproduce and then go ahead and die. What a horrible life to live. To use the common atheist argument that we are nothing but matter in motion is an awful way to go about living life. Pursuing that idea only results in an even further degradation of life itself. If this is totally true, then all morality is thrown away. Murder, rape, theft... All are made okay and family integrity, love, and hope are obsolete. We are not just matters in motion. We're not bags of stardust. We're not modern day monkeys. We're children 
of the true and living God. Thank God for his word and his communication with us because he tells us something very different than what the scientific community is going to tell you. He tells us that we are redeemed, that we have a purpose, we have a savior in Jesus Christ, that we have meaning in this life given by God. So trust science, learn science, but don't make science your God. I can't tell you how the universe was created. I can't tell you when everything was created. I can't tell you the mechanisms, and quite frankly, neither can anyone else. Despite what the scientific community says and how much evidence they can try to rack up, they can't tell you either. But I can tell you who is responsible for all those things, and that is God, Yahweh of the universe, the creator of all things. So I want to end with this. This is in the very beginning of the book of John. There are five verses where Jesus is recognized for who he truly is. And it answers every question that we have about astronomy, physics, biology, you know, the creation of the world, all those things. It says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness and the darkness was not overcome by it. So in this passage, this shows you who Jesus truly is. He's the word. He is God. He is creator. He is life, light, and a deflector of darkness. This is not something that you're going to get from your biology textbook. This is not something you're going to get by studying the stars at night alone until you flip the perspective and you look at those things through the lens of the Bible. It's all a matter of perspective. It's all a matter of the lens that you choose, the goggles that you choose to wear when you are looking at these things. If you are choosing to wear secular goggles while you are observing science and you want to compartmentalize your science with your faith and that you don't think they should intermingle, then I want to challenge you to, to change that. You know, I went on a journey. I call it a journey. It's, it's kind of like a, a spiritual uh, investigation, I guess where I basically, I, I started to, to study science from a biblical perspective. And I did it with the, the mindset that I remember praying beforehand, God, I'm going to basically pursue these, these things that the world says proves that you don't exist. I'm going to study them and may the truth be known. Like if you don't truly exist, then let it be known in my studies. You know, let it, let it be known that, you know, I, it's very apparent and if you do truly exist, let that be known as well. And I promise you, <laughs> which is why this episode is even existing right now, that God God prevailed through the process. Okay, so the more I studied biology and the more I studied, you know, things like the Big Bang Theory, uh, evolutionary theory, the more I, I studied these things, I could see the inconsistencies of the secular arguments, and I could see the glory of God showing through the biblical arguments. And I want to challenge you guys to do the same. Um, there are several resources out there that you guys can use to do this. Um, one of them that has helped me out a lot is uh, the Bible Project. Okay, so they have all kinds. They have a website. They have courses you can take. They have great resources on YouTube where it actually has illustrations. It basically allows you to really understand what the Bible is all about and what the Bible is. So that's one um, answers in Genesis. They have uh, a couple of exhibits, actually not too far down the road from where I live in Kentucky. They have the Creation Museum. They have the Ark Encounter. Those are two awesome things. If you guys 
haven't checked those out, definitely check those out. Um, they have a website as well, answersingenesis.org, where they have all kinds of articles posted about countless topics in the scientific world and how to view that from a Christian perspective. Um, another one is the Discovery Institute. They are an intelligent design type resource, so not necessarily creationism itself, you know, seeing it from a biblical perspective, but they are presenting evidence, scientific evidence from an intelligent design perspective. So check them out as well. Um, those are some great resources just to kind of get you guys started. And of course, just read and pray about it. I mean, read the Bible, pray about what the what the Bible's saying and, you know, investigate. Do your own investigations. Don't let the worlds, don't let the articles, don't let the textbooks tell you what to think. Find, figure out for yourself. Go on a deep dive, get your, roll your sleeves up and get down down and dirty with, with the Bible and what it says. That's what I want to challenge you guys with. All right. So thank you all for listening today. I know this was a long solo episode, probably the longest I've ever done. I think this is an important topic. This is something I'm obviously passionate about. Something that I think a lot of people, they, they know some of the truths around science and how to approach it from a faith perspective, but they don't necessarily have the ammo to be able to do it, to be able to hold a conversation with somebody that might oppose their, oppose their arguments. So Maybe this gave you a little bit of ammo. Maybe this gave you a little bit of inspiration to do a little bit of studying yourself. And regardless of the case, thank you guys for listening to the Rise Killick podcast today. Um, leave a rating and review. Check us out on social media. And thank you all. And I'll see you guys next week.